Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs reminisce about how they used to pass the time at shopping malls. We then turn to a report on how malls are disappearing at a rapid rate. We'll celebrate Big Bird, who just turned 50. We describe how an expert on money laundering launders money. We admire an imaginative motorist who turned a car into a banana. And we observe that some online retailers need to keep a more careful watch on their suppliers. In celebration of our second season, we've decided that our first interview will be with the Dean of Old Dogs Podcasts, Mr. Paul Menzel. Stay with us. Hey, Jim. What's on your mind? Well, you know, we got a pod nugget about the dying of the malls. Yes, yes. And, uh, well, I'm waxing a little nostalgic about that because, you know, I, you and I grew up with malls. It's true. That was where you went shopping. You went to yeah. a mall and... And you walked around and uh, kind of got ideas for what you really needed from what was being showcased in the windows. Sure. Uh, there was a kind of comfort in it, of course. I mean, I grew up in the North, as you did. And uh, so a good part of the winter was just unpleasant to go shopping, let's say, in downtown, uh, where you'd have to slog around in the snow and uh, go from store to store. And it just wasn't as convenient or pleasant as going inside in comfort, grabbing an ice cream cone or something. Yeah. But how long has it been since you've actually gone shopping in a mall? That kind of shopping yeah. where you wandered around and uh, mm -hmm. looked at what was going on in the shops? And no. The last time that my wife and I went to a mall was to go to the Apple store uh, because she had a question about her phone. And that was our purpose. It was actually a destination to a particular store. So if it had been freestanding, you wouldn't have gone to the mall. Right. Wouldn't have needed to. Yeah. And I think that's been my experience. The only, the only time I go to a mall is to visit a particular store for either a particular gift or a service that, uh, that I need. Uh, but I don't. I don't wander around malls uh, mostly because people stare at you when you do that. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, what do you mean stare? Is it the clothing you're wearing or the absence of clothing? Could you're... be. Well, they look at me and they see my age and they mm. say that man isn't walking. He should be walking in the mall. Oh. Why isn't he walking? So, okay. You know, I, I... Well, maybe they just don't recognize you because you're not part of a walking group. You don't have the right shoes. That's true. That is communal. You don't have the right stare. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Stare and, and a certain purpose to your walk. Yeah. I, and there's, I like that. there's always this problem for the rest of shoppers, you know, when uh, they, get, they get held up by this gaggle of walkers staring in the windows at Victoria's Secret. Have I that, seen you doing that? Or? No, no, I've seen you doing that. Ah, okay. So anyway, I, I understand why in, our, in the piece that's one of our pod nuggets, uh, the concept of malls as it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is, is dying off. Yeah, um, because of the internet. And that's, that's logical. But you know, what I still really like 
uh, although I don't seek it out that much, is looking for stuff and holding it in your hand, actually feeling it, uh, for clothing, for example. Are we getting back to Victoria's No, 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 no. No, um, a shirt or a sweater or something, actually seeing what I'm buying. Yes. And I miss that, and I take a chance if I order that online. Well, you know, a lot of people these days will go into a department store, find what they like, mm-hmm. and then go back and order it on the, the internet. Ju- thereby doubling their effort. Yeah. But it does satisfy what you're talking about, is being mm-hmm. able to see, touch it, feel it, maybe try it on even. Uh, Walk out with it. <laughs> yeah. And tr- trying on a toaster can be painful. <laughs> no, have you ever done that? For decades, going to the mall meant you were spending a day shopping and maybe having lunch at a food court. But the times, they are a-changing. This news is from the Washington Post for November 22, 2019. Of course, for many of our generation, going to the mall now means mall walking for exercise, not shopping. I do some mall standing. (laughs) I I do mall sitting. (laughs) According to a Credit Suisse report, one in four malls is expected to close by 2022. We've all experienced the spooky feeling of visiting a mall when many of the shops are empty and shoppers can be counted on one hand. It feels like the movie set for Night of the Living Dead. Now, one of the main reasons is a change in shopping habits. Shoppers today are more likely to find what they want on the Internet. Having something shipped to your home is more appealing than driving to a mall and walking blocks indoors to get to your destination. The formula of having one or two large retail stores as anchor tenants to create traffic is no longer working. Familiar mall stalwarts like Sears, Pennies, and Lord & Taylor are having money problems and closing stores. Even Macy's is cutting back on the retail locations. A food court and a carousel are not the magnets they used to be. The malls that are thriving have reinvented themselves as lifestyle destinations. They feature upscale brands that appeal to higher earners. They also feature businesses like restaurants, spas, apple stores, and boutique gyms that keep customers coming back even if they do their shopping online. One new mall in New Jersey will feature indoor ski slopes, a water park, and an aquarium. Hmm. I can't say I will miss the old formula for malls, but I don't crave the new lifestyle destinations either. Tell you what, Jim, wake me up when the next fad arrives, okay? All right, here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. What is eight foot tall with yellow feathers and an award-winning TV show? Oh, I I think I've seen something like that in a bar. (laughs) Well, the answer is Big Bird, who just turned 50. This item is from Time Magazine for November 18th, 2019. Big Bird was one of the original cast members when Sesame Street debuted on November 10th, 1969. Now, that makes the character 50 years old, although he's claimed to be just six and a half all that time. Perhaps he would be better at counting if he watched his own show more often. (laughs) And here's some more interesting trivia about the world's biggest yellow bird. In 1970, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One of his favorite dishes is seven-layer birdseed dip. Obviously, um, 
I don't know where I was going. I, I don't even... One of his favorite dishes is seven-layer birdseed dip, and his show, Sesame Street, has won 193 Emmy Awards in the course of creating 4,935 episodes. For most of those 50 years, Big Bird's inner bird was a puppeteer <laughs> named Carol Spinney, who finally retired in 2018 at the age of 84. His replacement, Matt Vogel, has been apprenticing for the role since 1996. Now, that's a long time to be waiting in the wings. Or maybe I should say (laughs) waiting for the wings. Although the character of Big Bird has remained unchanged, Sesame Street has not. New characters have been added. Episodes are now a half hour instead of an hour. And there's a new set which has Big Bird living in a tree. Uh, Obviously a big tree. Congratulations to Sesame Street for remaining a trusted resource for helping children deal with the complexities of life. And to Big Bird for remaining kind and friendly all those years. A 73-year-old professor at the University of Miami was considered an expert on drug trafficking and money laundering in South America. Maybe too expert, according to federal prosecutors. This item appeared in the Washington Post for November 19, 2019. Professor Bagley had co-edited a book titled Drug Trafficking, Organized Crime, and Violence in America. He had served as a consultant to the FBI, the State Department, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. He had been invited to testify before Congress and was an expert witness in several high-profile trials. He knew a lot about money laundering. But according to federal prosecutors, he knew too much for his own good. He began using his expertise to launder money through a personal corporation. About two years ago, he began receiving deposits of about $200,000 at a time. The money came from bank accounts in the United Arab Emirates and Switzerland. Prosecutors claim that the funds were the proceeds of foreign bribery and embezzlement stolen from the Venezuelan people and routed through foreign banks. Once in Bagley's business account, he cut a cashier's check for 90%, which was passed on to another individual, and the professor kept the rest. This was a rather modest cut, considering the normal percentage for laundering is 30%. That's, well, that's, that's what, what I... You pay yeah, me too. Yeah. Professor Bagley is now facing two counts of money laundering and up to 20 years for each count. Not the best way to spend your retirement. There's a part of me that admires the man for finding a creative way to leverage his knowledge into a profitable business while in his 70s. But, you know, it's looking like he'll be howling at the moon through prison bars. Yeah. Paul, you know what? I wish I were Steve Braithwaite. And because? Well, because he built a banana-shaped car. Oh, you've always wanted to do that. (laughs) Well, I wanted to do something to break the monotony of a boring job, and he did it. Okay. Once completed, he took to the road. This pod nugget is from the Houston Chronicle for November 26, 2019. Braithwaite, aged 59, built his custom fruit car over a Ford F-150 truck chassis. It took him two and a half years since he only worked on his car on Sundays. Don't know why, but (laughs) that's what he did. He calls it the world's only motorized banana. For those who like particulars, the big banana is 23 feet long, sports four seats, and gets about 14 miles to the gallon, 
And it definitely looks like a banana. Yeah, really. He's been driving it all over the United States for the last two years. His goal is to visit all 50 states. There's no information on how he intends to reach Hawaii. He supports himself on the road by offering pay-what-you-can rides, and he posts his progress on his Facebook page. As you can imagine, he's frequently pulled over by state troopers who wonder if his ride is legal. After one such stop, the trooper wished him luck and gave him 20 bucks. After two years on the road, he has a large following thanks to a lot of press coverage. You gotta admit, Paul, that the big banana car has appeal. Did you really say that? Well, you told me to say it. Oh, let's see. Walmart Canada had the wool pulled over their eyes with a sweater that had a not-so-hidden drug message. This pod nugget comes from the Sky News website dated December 9th, 2019. The pullover depicted a Santa seated behind a table with three lines of a white powdery substance in front of him and a straw in his hand. The caption on the sweater was, Let it snow. Now, as you probably know, snow is a nickname for cocaine. The product description read, and I'm not making this up, We all know how snow works. It's white, powdery, and the best snow comes straight from South America. That's why Santa really likes to savor the moment when he gets his hands on some quality, grade-A Colombian snow. Oh, wow. (laughs) A spokesperson for Walmart apologized for the obvious drug references and removed the product from the website. That was a shrewd move. (laughs) They said it was sold by a third party and doesn't represent Walmart's values. You know, it sounds like someone got away with a joke at the expense of the giant retailer. Mm -hmm. I assume they're now reviewing new products on their website more rigorously? Yeah, probably, and I'm guessing that those wayward sweaters are now in rehab. What can I say about Paul Menzel? How can I adequately introduce a man whom I've known for 30 years and continues to astonish me and the world with his wit and energy? Well, here goes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Menzel. Paul, as the year has come round full circle and we're about to start a new season, I thought it would be a good idea to do a slightly different interview for this episode and ask you about your life. Oh, um, it's uh, it's been long. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you want to go back to uh, my birthplace? No. No, well, actually, it is kind of interesting that you were born in probably the coldest town on the face of the earth. Yeah, often. Novosibirsk, Minnesota. Uh, well, close. It, Hibbing, Minnesota. Hibbing, Minnesota. Uh, known and, for the birthplace for Bob Dylan, Kevin McHale, and Roger Maris. Okay, I don't have a follow-up <laughs> to that. You're speechless. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's a small town, about 20,000 people, mm. on the Iron Range of northern Minnesota. And yet, here you are in the very southern part of the United States. Well, you know what? When I was 18, I said, do I want to be an iron ore miner or do I want to go to college? I went to, to college. I think it was a, a good choice on my part. Was this a Hibbing normal university that you went to? There was not a normal school in, uh-huh. in Hibbing. No, I, I went to a uh, small liberal arts college, Carleton College, in Northfield, Minnesota. I didn't want to miss a winter. <laughs> <laughs> Another wise choice of mine. 
Well, Paul, obviously, when you made that decision, you also allowed your sense of humor to pretty much flower. It turned out to be a rather essential career element for you. Well, you know, in college, I got involved with an improvisational comedy group. Mm -hmm. And once I matriculated, I ended up— Can you say that on the air? Yeah, I think so. You admit— Matriculating? Okay. Um, I ended up being hired by a comedy review group in Minneapolis, my first really professional work, Dudley Riggs' Brave New Workshop— And so I guess a through line for my acting career has always been improvisational comedy. So, yes, I can't help it. Uh, I'm usually ostracized at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Stay away from him. He'll make jokes about you. So are you improvising now? No, 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 no. This is all written out. Really? It sounds so natural. It does, doesn't it? So what brought you then to Houston, Texas? Well... I decided I wanted to start my own improvisational comedy review. And looking around for places to land at that time, this is 1977, Houston was considered the city on the rise. They called it the golden buckle on the sun belt. (laughs) I don't know who coins this stuff. So anyway, I checked it out. Um... And it seemed like a good thing to do because I was innocent. I didn't know better. And uh, moved here with an acting company, found a place, renovated it, and the comedy workshop started in 1977 and ran until 1990. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were a bunch of comics that came out of that room that uh, did quite well for themselves. For example? Brett Butler, Mm -hmm. Sam Kinison. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill Hicks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, th- this was a group of very edgy comics that took advantage of this little stage in this 100-seat theater to hone their comedy. That's not the only thing that you did. During that time, you also started a career as an actor. Well, you know what? That goes back to the days in Minneapolis when I was working as an actor. I got a ton of industrials and commercials because I guess I had average Minnesota looks. And that followed me down down to Houston. I, I uh, uh, worked a lot uh, on camera work, a bunch of movies. At that time in the 80s, Houston was uh, a target for a lot of movie companies, especially lower budget made for TV movies, mm-hmm. of which I appeared in several <laughs> So, yeah, acting has always been a, a through line for me, and also writing. I, I wrote, when I had my comedy theater, I, had a, a, I wrote a bunch of comedy sketches. Uh, I also wrote a, a bunch of, frankly, commercial things for industrial companies, a mm-hmm. kind of a humorous look at whatever they wanted to project. If there was anything funny about the oil and gas business, you were the guy to make it funny. Yes, that and also medical products. Medical I, products. I was able to look at the funny side of a pacemaker, for example. <laughs> you wouldn't think there would be a funny side, but yes, there was. And curiously, in that period of time, 80s, I met a young whippersnapper uh, named Jim Conlon, who had a what would you call it? A creative agency, I would guess, specializing in radio. Yeah. And that's how you and I met. 
And uh, you had the foresight and taste to hire me for a lot of radio commercials. Some of our funnier ones, as I recall. And uh, it, it continued policy of you paying me to meet with you. Yeah. And, uh, so. Well, I had no choice. You were <laughs> under contract. Ah, it was sort of a union thing. Okay. And, and I'm grateful that even now, when we get together, you slip me a I do. five or a ten. Well, and... you need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what gave you the idea, after all of this time and success and contentment, you got the wild and crazy idea of starting a podcast. Why did you need to do that? Well, you know, Jim, you and I have worked together on several projects over the years, some of them... Unfortunate, <laughs> uh, and and we would we would get together once a month and do do what if scenarios. What if we became pirates? President and, and vice president of the United States. For yes, example. and uh, you know what my preference was, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it came up in our conversations, looking for something creative to do, something different, and uh, so that's how the podcast came about, and we. We kind of noodled uh, over different formats until we finally uh, put together what we thought would be in a, a winning format. The correct format, and that is for the underserved population of this country, those folks over the age of 65. Yes. What was the incentive that got you interested in wanting to communicate with other folks our age? Well, number one, I like having a project in front of me. I like having something that... Uh, engages me intellectually, engages my sense of humor. And hang gliding is so passe. And you don't have to wear clothing. Mm. Clothing is optional. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I have found it very stimulating. I found it to be a good way of uh, keeping your wits about you. Such as they are. Such as they are. And and also, uh, I I have to stay current on current events, do a lot of reading, and so it's it's been a very engrossing kind of a thing. Uh, not quite as interesting as sitting on the couch and watching the Today Show. What is that up to seven hours now or something? <laughs> but yeah, and and I I don't know if you share my uh, my feelings about it, but I've I've enjoyed it immensely and looking forward to year two. Well, I do share your feelings, and I wonder, now that we have done a year's worth of episodes, uh, what in particular have you learned uh, from working on this and also from the people that we have encountered along the way? Uh, We usually end an interview with a question like, what advice can you give people about staying engaged with life? And I would say without fail, our people that we have interviewed have had uh, some really deep thoughts about how they have kept their life vital into their 70s, 80s in some cases, even 90s, mm-hmm. by uh, finding something they can invest their energies in. It may be writing plays, or it uh, may be becoming a therapist, or... Uh, we interviewed a, a cartoonist who is still doing a cartoon called Tank McNamara. After all these years, he has shifted from pen and ink to uh, electronic drawing, mm-hmm. but uh, it has kept him engaged and interested for all these years. Okay, good. Well, one final question then. Sure. Looking ahead. Uh-huh. What do you think you would like to be remembered for? 
being the longest lived person in the United States. Um, I guess that the biggest achievement in my life was opening the comedy workshop, and it still has a life of its own as a place where people were able to develop their artistic side. So I, I guess that's something I would like to be remembered for. And other than that, being a very good dancer. <laughs> to the embarrassment of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon. <laughs> <laughs>